well, thank you, Midge. I'm not going to ask you to put that on, a, on again. But, you know, there's, there seems to be a lot there. It's like, put on your armour, put on your breastplate, put on your belt, carry that shield, put on that helmet, pray all the time. And then in there, you've got to look after your family and you've got your daily work to do. When I first read that, I was thinking, gosh, this is just too much. Uh, It's crazy. And I've learned, of course, that when I experience those feelings, I've generally got to take a step backwards and look at it again because uh, things change when I look at it again. So that's how I first felt with it all. Um, so let's take a look at the armour as, uh, as promised to keep us safe and so that we might walk in victory against these evil forces. Um, hey, I've jumped a page. Oh, yeah. So the belt of truth. The Roman armour, you can put, if you would please, the picture up. The Roman armour, the belt supported strips of uh, leather which hung down there in front of the guy, protecting this very important region of a male anatomy. And that would be known as girding one's loins, if you like, but uh, it's a, protection, a bit of protection for yourself so you felt uh, safe that you could stand firm against someone. So <clears throat> to gird one's loins was to put this protection on so that you could stand firm against your enemy. But here it's the belt of truth. So the question is, what is the truth? And looking at that, I'll tell you what, philosophers make a terrifying meaning meaning of, of what is truth. So for me, I think there are some simple truths for us, uh, like God created the world, God loves us, God, uh, Jesus was God's only begotten son. Jesus died so that we could be saved from our sins and receive eternal life. And I think the words actually go like this from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only son so that whoever believes him in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So the truth there is in Jesus. And, for example, when Jesus was comforting his disciples, not long before he was taken away, so the end was coming, if you like, he said to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, and if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And clearly the disciples were uh, not too sure. I guess they didn't really understand Jesus' metaphors here and the way that the way was not a physical path, but it's a way of living and It fell to Thomas to ask the doubtful question here. But Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So Jesus is also the truth and his way is the truth of our lives. Uh, the breastplate of righteousness, and righteousness, oh dear, there's another one. Righteousness is a confusing one. I think if we look at what's going on in the world right now, we witness many people committing hideous crimes in the belief that they are doing the right thing. They believe they are being righteous when it is clear to all others around the world that they are not. But put that aside, what of our responses to their behaviours? Hmm. Have we been judgmental? Do we need to remove that plank in our eyes before we remove the speck in theirs? I know that my response has been a long way separated from Jesus' example. Right now I feel myself torn between my earthly desires for revenge. Yes, let's go and bomb them, let's go and splat them. And then I have to think what Jesus would offer the other cheek. And I've got to say, hmm, which response would be righteous? So how could we here in this church know that we were righteous? And we don't get offered a lot about what is righteousness, but what isn't, if you, if you pick that up. So here in Matthew 6, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in their synagogues and on the streets. Be honoured Uh, to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that in giving you may be secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And clearly, the error that we make here is in seeking and giving value to the judgment of other people, of other humans, when what we should be doing is seeking the judgment of God. And a similar but slightly different point is a continuation of the same thing when Jesus talked about prayer. And when you pray, do not pray like hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues on the street corners to be seen by others. And truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father. But when you pray, sorry, uh, to your Father who is unseen, then your Father 
who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Righteousness, then, is also about what you do unseen by other people. And it's what's in your heart. And we witness this right back at the beginning of the Bible when we look at the story of Cain and Abel about what's in your heart. Going to Genesis 4, when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crop as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. God accepted Abel and his gift. But he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. There's an element here where we have to take control. And, of course, <coughs> some of this was... Uh, Cain didn't give with a good heart. He gave because he was obligated to give. And who hasn't done things resentfully? I can't number the times that I have done things because I had to do them rather than because I wanted to do them. And does it work? Not very well. And, you know, If Margaret asks me to do something and I don't want to do it, I'll put it off and she'll (coughs) nag again and I'll put it off and it'll come again and eventually I'll do it, but grudgingly. And yes, she gets the job done, but what price? You know, we have a bit of a bad feeling between us and how does that fit in with being at one with each other and at one with God. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, So it's clear that what we do for God and for others, we should do with a good heart. And if you can't find a good heart, don't do it. But actually, I don't really mean that. What I really mean is find a good heart. Okay, um, so being righteous and being right with God, I think, is difficult to live with and to, as it is to understand. And what was righteousness? And Margaret and I were discussing this the other night, and the best that we could come up there was righteousness as being Jesus like. It's basically, if you're in a situation, ask yourself, what would Jesus do in this situation? And if we follow that, then I think we're pretty well on the right steps for being righteous. The shield of faith. Now, the Roman shield, I gave uh, Midge a poxy little 
shield. It's actually the top of a water butt tub. So, uh, but the, the Roman shield, you can see, was quite big. It's about two foot by four foot in length, and it's actually somebody could stand behind that quite well. <clears throat> so it was such that it, in, the, in the text there it says it could extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. one and as it's a water butt, I was thinking, well, if that also a water butt's going to put its water, it'll put out flaming arrows, won't it? But you've got to say, why the use of flaming? And I was guessing that they originate from flaming hell. And, but in incendiary devices have been used for a long time, very successfully. Uh, they're usually something small, able to pass through defences, but once they're there, like little seeds of hellfire growing and wreaking destruction. Uh, destruction. The arrow is clearly a metaphor for any of the devil's tools, perhaps the carefully planted words that sow seeds of doubt or discontent. Our faith, though, and the shield of faith, if it's sufficiently strong, should serve to deflect and render useless Satan's poison. The helmet of salvation. This had me puzzled. I was going, why a helmet? Um, Salvation is stated as the saving of the soul from sin and its consequences. And if we don't achieve salvation, then we would experience God's judgment. And God's judgment has often been referred to as God's wrath, which we would expect to come raining down from heaven. So I kind of think the helmet, in that sense, protects us from something that's raining down from heaven. Clearly, it is our salvation that is doing that. Um, Now, in Acts 3, 17 to 20, uh, Peter is talking to Israelites after Jesus has been killed. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. (coughs) Repent then and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So repentance, we talk about salvation and repentance is a key factor of that. And we saw earlier that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So a belief in Jesus is another factor that goes into salvation. And in Ephesus 7, we're reminded, uh, again, Jesus saying, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And further, when Jesus was being quizzed by some Pharisees, he used the words repent when they asked, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and other outcasts? And Jesus answered, people who are well 
do not need a doctor, but only those who are sick. I have not come to call respectable people, but uh, to repent, but outcasts. So Jesus uh, is seen there to be using the word repent as something that we need to do. So it seems that salvation isn't free, it has a price, and part of that price is that Jesus died for us so that we could be saved. But secondly, we have to take some action. We have to be repent. We have to repent. And my understanding of repentance is it's more than just admitting that you've done wrong. I think there has to be, for me, an element of regret about it. And uh, most importantly, this idea that we don't want to make that mistake again, so we commit to changing what we do. I know we fail again and again, but we do try and attempt to not do that again. And I believe it's important uh, that you must have occasions in your life when someone has apologised to you, but it was done because it's expedient rather than heartfelt. And I guess you have apologised to people because it was expedient rather than heartfelt. And I've got to say, how did you feel about it? It, it doesn't work, does it? it is that heartfelt business has got to be in there somewhere for it to work. It leaves a bad taste. Um, you know, the, the apology needs to be genuine. And I think while we talk about forgiveness salvation and righteousness because they're all sort of coming in inextricably linked i think we need to mention uh, god's grace too because that is a part of it and philip yancey in his book um i I was asked to read this book by the pastor of my last church because i uh, made some rather ungracious comments about muslims And he and his wife just raised their eyebrows in shock that I would utter such a statement. And later he suggested to me, John, that it might be a good idea if you had a read of this book. Okay. So um, his book is is What's So Amazing About Grace. And in there he doesn't attempt to define grace, but he says, I would rather convey grace than explain it and gives lots of examples so you get the feeling of it of what it is it's such a difficult thing to describe and if I were to try and pin it down uh, I would say it was God's amazing ability to grant unjustified forgiveness yeah grant forgiveness without justice being served that's quite alien to us isn't it That's quite alien. We expect justice. But Yancey explains this. He he says, by its very nature, forgiveness is unjust. But at the very least, forgiveness breaks the cycle of blame and it loosens the stranglehold of guilt. I'll say that again. At very least... I've lost my bit. Yes, by its very nature, forgiveness is unjust. But at the very least, 
forgiveness breaks the cycle of blame and loosens the stranglehold of guilt. And how many conflicts have we witnessed, even the stuff going on in Northern Ireland, which was a civil war, if you like, well, it was a civil war, how much senseless tit-for-tat killings, kneecappings did we witness because there was no room for somebody to break that cycle. Nobody would give that first bit of forgiveness. And notice it also says, loosens the stranglehold of guilt. And I remember the guilt I experienced around the divorce of my first wife. She successfully piled the blame onto me, and I was stupid enough to take it. And it was a stranglehold. It sucked the life out of me, uh, leaving me just permanently exhausted. Guilt is a terrible burden. And it took me a few years before I could get round to thinking, okay, yeah, there were things I could have done better, but actually... That responsibility for the failure of that marriage laid with both of us, not just me. Um, and, and that's that. So, but it's a shame I hadn't, wasn't a Christian at the time because that forgiveness might have just come a bit quicker. There you go. The sword of the Spirit, which in this case was the word of God. And notice, it is the only offensive weapon in our armour. The word of God is our only offensive weapon in our armour. No aeroplanes, no bombs, no guns, no bullets. Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, Judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So, pretty scary stuff, I kind of imagine. But it is the only weapon available to us. And a sword can be used as a defensive weapon or an offensive weapon. So, the word of God can be used, in effect, for both purposes, if you like, because it's there. And finally, prayer. We've already said a little bit about prayer in the extract from the Sermon on the Mount. That was very much about making it a private affair between you and God, uh, and not in a self-righteous way, possibly in an outwardly demonstrative way. Here in Ephesus, though, we are told to pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And this is the bit, along with the other bits, that seem to me to be an impossible task. We have lives to live, we have work to do, families to look after. And I can only imagine that it really means that perhaps we should pray little and often. And if we're frequently paying, we're keeping God in our mind there as we live. Um, but following on from that, Matthew 6, 7, so he's staying with the same bit with it. Jesus said, when you pray, 
Do not use a lot of meaningful, meaningless words as pagans do who think that God will hear them because their prayers are long. Do not be like them. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. And that takes us to the Lord's Prayer if you'd like to join me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen.